Well, good morning, everyone. All right. Well, you guys got your thinking caps on this morning. Can you imagine like when you used to go to class and you know one of your teachers was really an intellect, a real smart one, and you had to get to class and make sure you were attentive. You wouldn't daydream about anything that you have to do for maybe another hour or what you're going to eat for lunch, right? You all f- you're with me? Yeah, okay. All right. Well, because to, to obviously some, some, of you, some of you have experienced Dr. Grady McMurtry for the past 20 years. He is not a stranger to our church here at Grace Church Waldorf. However, to some of you that have been joining our church for the last couple of years, he has not been here. You're in for a treat. Um, to say he's an intellect is an understatement, um, but he, as Pastor Dennis mentioned, he is uh, part of or he runs the Creation Worldview Ministries. Um, he uh, travels all around the world in five different continents, although with COVID has been less. Um, he presents as a missionary, a teacher. Uh, he's a biblical scientific creationist, and if you don't understand that, ask him later along with and as being an apologist. Um, so we're really, really, really excited to have him today and with us for the next couple of days. Uh, we had a delightful dinner last night, right, Grady? We sure did with Pastor Dennis and I and yourself. And so we had a little fun, and I'm going to have a little fun. So here's Grady. Come on up. Come on up, Grady. Give him a round of applause. <laughs> Well, good morning. morning. Apparently not. (laughs) Have you forgotten what the Bible says? This is the morning the Lord has made. You shall rejoice in it. It's not an option. It's a commandment. So let's try this again. For those who are not familiar, I'm a very interactive kind of a teacher as well. So let's just try that one more time, okay? Let the Lord really know it's a good morning, will you? Good morning. morning. That's a little better. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about the creationist view of marriage. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at woman made in the image of God. Tomorrow night, absolutely no truth whatsoever to global warming or cooling being caused by people. We're going to be taking a look at the old earth views of some Christians are not right theologically on Tuesday night. And on Wednesday night we have saved our single biggest presentation. It's about dinosaurs. It's our biggest presentation. You, I heard all the groaning. Listen, y'all just need more caffeine is what it is, okay? <laughs> but I'm so glad to be back with you. I have been here for 20 years off and on, and I sort of consider this, excuse the expression, my home church in the north. <laughs> I live in Orlando, Florida. Everything is north. <laughs> but in order to talk about the creation's view of marriage, I'm going to ask you to open your owner's manuals. Yes, you're not, you're not turning. If you would please open your, the owner's manual, that's your Bible, to Genesis chapter 1. And then I'm going to ask you to do two things for me. Number one, I'm going to ask you to hang on tight because I'm going to take you places you've never been before. Number two, please do not judge what I'm saying in the middle. Please wait till I get to the end. Look back with me. And if I have taught truth, you accept it. If I have not, you reject it. Is that fair? Yes. Fair enough? Now, in talking about the creationist view of marriage, what we're going to do is we're going to read two and a half verses. We're going to start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and the narrative continues from there. Now, first of all, when you read that, it is a good translation. However, there's something not quite right there either, isn't there? After all, it is not correct in the English language to mix singulars and plurals together, correct? And so there's just not something quite right here because there is a mixture of singulars and plurals here, but it's a good translation. And why? You see, God is trying to get your attention. First of all, let us, etc. This is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying, we want to make man and woman in our image according to our likeness. Now, first of all, I want to concentrate on those two words, image. The word image translated there is today the root word for what we call photograph. If you take it literally, it says that we are made in the photographic image of God. But I want you to think about what that actually means. Now, if I were to go outside right now in the parking lot, take a camera, take a picture of this building, uh, got it printed on photographic paper, please tell me, what would I have an image of on the paper? Come on, you can, you can respond, folks. I'm from out of town. <laughs> what would I have an image of on the paper? Okay, well, some of you said the building. Some said the church. This is a building. You are the church. Amen. Hello. Amen. But I have an image of the building. Is that correct? Yes. But what does the Bible tell us God is? God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It is a two-part process. In spirit, 50%, and in truth, 50%. That's 50% in the supernatural and 50% in the natural, the intellect. And, uh, but God is spirit. Think with me. The Father does not have a body. The Holy Spirit does not have a body. And, and they only have a body through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Is that correct? And so let's think, what does it mean to be made in the photographic image of God? Well, we do not have the technology. I can assure you as a scientist, we do not have the technology to take the photograph of a spirit, but let's pretend for a moment we could. So if I took the photograph of a spirit, went and got it developed on photographic paper, what would I have an image of on the paper? I said, if we could, what would I have an image of on the paper? Spirit. spirit. And what the Bible says is that you are not made in the physical image of God. The Bible says you're made in the spiritual image of God. And for God, who is spirit, to make himself manifest on the earth in a way that we might try to grasp something about his attributes, his characteristics, his emotions, notice that he had to make both a man and a woman to accomplish the task. Did you hear that? Now, ladies, ladies, today and tonight, you are really going to want to support me. So it is appropriate to say amen occasionally. I said God who is spirit, who wanted to make himself physically manifest on the earth in a way that we might try to grasp something about his character, his attributes, his emotions, had to make both a man and a woman to accomplish the task. Hello? Amen. But then I want to talk about that word here, according to our likeness. 
That word likeness in Hebrew is called a qualifying word. It sets limits. It's like putting a picture frame around a picture. The frame sets the limits of the picture. Everything inside is picture, everything outside is not, correct? And so what the Bible says is man and woman are made in the spiritual image of God and you have every attribute, characteristic, and emotion that God has except there are limits. You're not God, you're never going to become God. He has attributes that you will never have. But the Bible says, in as much as it is humanly possible, you have every attribute of God it is humanly possible to have. And as a scientist, I find this interesting because you can actually argue back to the attributes, the emotions, the characteristics of God using cause and effect reasoning. So for example, I know that God loves. Now, why? How do I know that God loves? It's really quite simple because I love. You see, he cannot put within us something he does not have or cannot do. And therefore, I know that God loves because I love. Apparently, you need a second example. Okay, I know that God has a sense of humor. Now, how do I know that God has a sense of humor? It's because I have a sense of humor. Apparently, many of you are not used to it yet, but, but I got one. And by definition, that means that God, well, think with me. I love because God loves because he is the infinite source of love and is able to put it in each of us. And likewise, well, he's the infinite source of humor. Okay, look, you know God has a sense of humor because he made us. Hello? What do we have here? What we have here is when God prepares the spirit of the man and the woman we call Adam and Eve. So here God is preparing their spirit. But what about the body? Where does that come into existence? Now it occurred on day six, but it's recorded for us in chapter two, verse seven. You have to remember that from Genesis 1-1 to the middle of verse two in chapter two, that is the abstract, it's the outline, it's the skeleton. And then starting with the second half of verse four, he starts to fill in the details. And so though the body was created on day six, the last thing in God's creation is recorded for us in Genesis 2-7. So let's just take a look down there. Notice in Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now, I can assure you as a scientist, every single word there in that verse is absolutely true. It is absolutely true that every single atom in your body is common in the dust of the earth. And you have to understand that there are three verbs in the first chapters of Genesis you need to understand because notice that God did not simply speak the man into existence. Now, he spoke the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, but he did not speak the man's body into existence. The verb here, well, it means to form the way a potter takes a lump of clay and forms a vessel. The bara verb means to create where there was nothing. That's used, for instance, in the very first part of chapter one. But here, well, he actually took one atom at a time out of the earth and he formed the body of the man. Notice how intimate that is. Would you agree making a human body one atom at a time is about as intimate as you can get, is that correct? And notice that God gets more intimate with his creation as he starts by speaking the heavens, time, the earth into existence. He just speaks them into existence. No more than you and I taking a breath of air. 
But then when he says about the plants, you know, let the earth bring forth the plants, it's a, it's a casual, but a little closer. But when it comes to making the body of the man, God hand picks one at a time and assembles his body, forms it. And this is where the body comes into existence. But of course, the body is not animate. It's not alive. All the tissues are there necessary for life, but it's not alive. And so what happens next? Notice it says that God breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of the man. The Hebrew word is nefesh, nefesh. But the word nefesh means life, soul, blood, but the soul is the intellect, the emotion, and the will, but the word means life, soul, or blood. And doesn't the Bible say that the life is in the blood, correct? Now I speak in medical universities, uh, teaching at medical universities, and the blood is considered medically to be a tissue. And it's the only tissue that moves around on the inside of your body. And I think you'll agree, if it's not moving around on the inside, you're not moving around on the outside. Hello? And how many of you have ever seen Jewish worship? How many of you have ever seen a church that uses the shofar or the shofarat, the ram's horn or the antelope's horn? Do you know why they do that? You don't? Well, you see, it says that God breathed the breath of life, the soul, into the man's body through his nostrils. And the ancient rabbis reasoned, how could such a great and awesome God, beyond fathom and thought, breathe into the nostrils of a man the breath of life? And they reasoned about it and they said, well, he must have used a funnel. (laughs) Well, that's a perfectly rational thought. He must have used a funnel. But how did you make a funnel in the old days? Well, you took a ram's horn or an antelope's horn, you cut off the tip, and that made a funnel. And when you see people blowing the shofar, and I'm not saying you have to, but you might consider getting one, but, (laughs) but, but, but when you see people doing that, Jews say that this is the way they return the breath of life through the instrument by which it was received, and that's why they do it. But of course, now we have the body, which was inanimate, God puts the soul, the intellect, the emotion, the will, what you feel, what you think, and how you tell your body to move around into the body, and the body becomes animate. And then God takes the spirit of Adam prepared beforehand, puts it inside his body, and he becomes a complete whole human being with infinite value and worth, body, soul, and spirit. Now, ladies, remember, I'm here to help you, right? Ladies, a little, little stronger there. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions today and in the form of if. So think to yourselves for just a moment. If you were God. And remember, I do like response. So if you were God and you had just made the very first man in human history, you'd, you'd made his body, you'd made him alive with his soul, and then you'd added his spirit. If you had just done that and if you were God, what is the very next thing you would do. Come on, if, if you were God, what's the very next thing that you would do? What, what would you create next? Excuse me? I finally got two people who responded loud enough to hear. And they said, a woman. Now I want you to know that I, I love that answer. I think that is a great answer. It's not the right answer, but I love, <laughs> I love that answer. 
Please notice, before the body of a woman existed on this earth, what is the next thing that God creates? Before there is a woman alive on this earth physically, the very next thing God creates is work. Hello? Notice God takes Adam out to the garden. God plants the garden. Now, why did God plant the garden? Because Adam was the last thing to come along, and he had never seen God work. And so God plants the garden to show him what work is, and then he says, okay, bud, you're the head farmer here. Well, there are people who tell jokes about the oldest profession in the world, but they're really quite wrong. The oldest profession in the world is agriculture. And God planted the garden to show Adam what work was, and then he put him in charge. Is that correct? And would you agree, this is a time when man could walk and talk with a holy God, that sin had not yet separated man from God. Is that correct? And Adam and, well, Adam and God could walk in the garden, talk to each other, they could have fellowship with each other, and sin had not yet separated man from a holy God. Correct? So that means work is a part of perfection. Work is honorable, work is good, work is a part of perfection, and we are going to have useful work to do throughout an eternity future as Christians. But here God creates work before the body of a woman even existed. Now ladies, you should have given me a large, hearty amen at that point. So I'll say this one more time for your benefit. I said before there was a woman alive on this earth, the next thing God created was, when there was only, when there was only a man present, work. I gave you a second chance. What can I do? Now, please now take a look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, I don't know about you, but I read the word helper, or you might have help meet, but it means helper. Um, Does anybody here read the word uh, slave? Excuse me? Anybody here read the word punching bag? No. No? I read the word helper. Is that correct? And I want to point out to you that the word helper is not a word of subservience. The word helper is a word of equality. Think with me for just a moment. Do you remember those old oak pews we used to have in churches before those nice padded chairs? (laughs) Come on, you do remember that, right? Now, those things, they are heavy, okay? Now, I am today about to turn 75 next month, and, um, but I am still a strong, vigorous missionary. Yes, thanks for the affirmation. Uh, but if you unbolt one of those pews, I today can still move it a few inches at a time by myself. But I have absolutely no problem whatsoever lifting up one end. And uh, now, Pastor, you're... you're Vigorous guy, I know you work out, right? You could pick up the other end, is that right? Oh, come on, have a little faith. Have a little faith. So you're a strong man, right? Yeah. So if we unbolted one of those pews and I pick up one end and you pick up the other and we say, take it out to the foyer, uh, please tell me, which one of us was more important in the process? Neither one, because we helped each other. Is that correct? And the word helper is not a word of subservience. It's a word of equality. And God says it's not good for a man to be alone. Now let's think, what does that mean? Because after all, was Adam alone? 
Oh, come on, God was there. Was Adam alone? No, he wasn't alone. So what does this word alone, translated here, really mean? It means this, that even when a man has God in his life, 100 total complete percent, Adam could walk and talk with God in the garden, sin didn't separate them. But that word alone means this, that even when a man has God in his life, 100 total complete percent, a man is incomplete. And God says it's not good for men to be incomplete. Therefore, I'm going to make an equal who will complete him. How you all doing so far? I could get a little more responses, you know. Now, I said twice I was going to ask you to do this. Now, God has just said it's not good for man to be incomplete. I'm going to make an equal who will complete him, correct? Now, second chance, if you were God, and I said if, but if you were God and you had just said that, what's the very next thing you would do? Oh, I love that answer. And it's so much better than make a dog. Uh, make a woman. I, 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 again, I love that answer. I think it's a great answer. It's not the right answer, but I think it's a great answer. I just love it personally. What is the very next thing God does? He says, okay, now Adam, I want you to name the animals. Now, first of all, I'd like you to think about this. Remember what I'm about to say. Never, ever get your education from a children's Sunday school story or Hollywood. Hello? <laughs> how many of us were taught as children, how many of us taught children the story of Adam naming the animals and we completely missed the whole purpose of the story. Because it is not a story about naming animals. What is it actually doing here? Why did God do this? Well, first of all, think with me. You know, we know the story about you know, Adam naming animals, and I want you to try to put the Bible in three dimensions. I want you to see it in three dimensions. Now, God and Adam were still united. Sin had not separated them. And let's think about Adam for just a moment. When God said, I want you to name the animals, did God give him the list of the animals? No. That means that Adam had a complete whole vocabulary. After all, he could walk and talk with God. And you know, God knows all the words. Hello? Aren't you glad he knows all the words? So Adam had a complete whole vocabulary, and God didn't give him the names. He said, you've got enough words in your vocabulary, you name them. Is that correct? And we sort of think about Adam naming the animals, you know, two by two going along here. And we also know that Adam was incredibly intelligent, correct? Come on, folks. He was born, you know, it's a speak, he was created with a perfect human mind. Now, if you think you're smart with a fallen mind, how smart would you be with a perfect mind? Hello? So we know Adam was incredibly intelligent and he had a complete whole vocabulary. And he says, uh, you know, God says, name the animals. And of course, since sin does not yet separate man from a holy God, Adam went, yes, sir. And he starts to name the animals. Are you starting to see this now? Now, I think after about the, oh, the first five or 10 pairs of animals goes by, Adam goes, wait a minute. Time out here. That, that's a football thing, if you don't. <laughs> Time out here. Uh, God, could we have a little word over here on the sideline? Uh, I've noticed 
that everything comes in right shoes and left shoes, and I've noticed that I'm a right shoe. Where's my left shoe? And God says, excuse me, I thought I said name the animals. And since sin doesn't separate a man from a holy God, Adam says, yes, sir, and he goes back to naming the animals. Are you starting to see this? Now, I think after about the first 50 pairs of animals goes by, Adam is starting to get just a little frustrated around here, we think. Apparently, those picture tubes are not really warmed up yet. Okay, I think after about the first 100 pairs of animals goes by, Adam is starting to get a little frustrated around here, what do you think? What is this story actually all about? Notice that after Adam names the animals, there was not found a helper suitable for him, is that correct? So why do we have this story? God is teaching Adam, impressing on him. Everything I've shown you is perfectly paired together. And there was not found a helper, a completer for Adam, correct? And God is saying, don't worry, my son. When I make her, she's going to be perfect. Because as you can see, I've already matched up everybody else perfectly, right? This is a story of God's confirmation. Do not worry, my son. When I make her, she's going to be perfect. And of course, there was not found a suitable completion for Adam. And so what happens next? We have the incredibly famous verse 21. I don't care where you go in the world, and I've traveled on five continents extensively. Doesn't matter where you go. Everybody has heard about this verse, and they've heard about Adam's rib. I mean, even if they think it's a Tracy and Hepburn movie. <laughs> the older one's got that. Now... But let's take a look at verse 21. It's an incredible verse because here we have the first medical firsts in human history. It says, because there was not found a helper suitable for Adam, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. So let's think about this for a minute. This is the first four medical firsts in human history. Do we have anybody here it's involved with the medical arts or sciences in any way whatsoever. Do we have any technicians? Nurses? Doctors? Drug dealers? <laughs> you know, anybody involved with the medical arts or sciences in any way whatsoever. Well, if we did, then your livelihood would come from verse 21. But here we have the first medical firsts in human history. First of all, it says that Adam was put into a deep sleep. Now, in Hebrew, the word is more like coma. Now, isn't a coma a, a sleep that some people never wake up? Is that correct? You sort of think of it like a, maybe a near-death experience, right? And then God cuts him open. He performs the first surgical operation in human history. Then he removes one of the ribs, and he closes the flesh back up at that place. So again, this is the first general anesthesia. We have the first surgical operation. Uh, and this is the first and only male pregnancy in human history. <laughs> and Adam was delivered by a cesarean section. <laughs> Apparently some of you were having a problem with this. <laughs> well, again, think with me for just a moment. God did put it under anesthesia. He did do the first surgical operation. Now, God is a perfect surgeon. There's no problem with infection here whatsoever. And he removed material, and he closed him up at that place. Is that correct? 
Now, think with me for just a moment. Is it possible to open a human body, take out material, seal it back up again without at least the shedding of a drop or two of blood? Excuse me? No. And I said that Adam was delivered by a cesarean section. Some of you took a little hesitancy at that. But would you agree with me? We often see a physical example in the Old Testament upon which a spiritual truth is taught in the New Testament. Is that correct? Agreed? Yeah, we often see a physical example in the Old Testament upon which a spiritual truth is taught in the New. Is that right? Think with me. Adam had to almost die, shed some of his blood to get his bride and the family that would come from their union. What's the New Testament parallel? Didn't the man Jesus Christ have to die completely, shed all his blood to get his bride and his family? Is that correct? Not so strange when you think about it. But the big problem is that word rib. It amazes me again that even Christians think that God removed one rib from a man's rib cage and made a woman. That is not what happened. God took all the material out of Adam's body to make the body of the woman, and I can prove it. The big problem is the translation of the word rib. Now, in Hebrew, this one word has 10 significant nuances or shades of meaning. These 10 meanings can be categorized in three categories. The first category it means something curved in general, but not the rib in a man's rib cage. This word can be used to refer to the round end of a round table, the round end of a grand piano, uh, the round end of a cul-de-sac street. It can refer to the arched uh, ceiling in a cathedral. It can refer to the stars stretched in the heavens from horizon to horizon. Things which are curved in general, but not the rib in a man's rib cage. The second category consists of three meanings. And these are quite interesting because they don't mean anything curved at all. They mean something that is straight and very, very strong. Straight and very strong. The best three English translations you would have to actually get what this word means then would thick, heavy, wooden timber. Thick, heavy, wooden beam. Thick, heavy wooden plank, things which are straight but very, very strong. Obviously, the third category has only one meaning. This is why it was chosen to be translated rib in the Bible. I'm going to ask you to do this. In your minds, just quick as you can, just think of any old three-masted wooden sewing ship you have ever seen in your life. I don't care whether it's a picture, a movie, a real one, or whatever. Maybe it was the Constellation. But just think of any old three-masted wooden shape in your mind. Then cut that ship in half. Then look inside the hull and think, what is the shape of the rib in an old wooden sewing ship? Well, actually, it's S-shaped. It starts here, goes in, down, then back out, and then in again until it meets the keel or the spine of the ship, which is why it's called a rib. It's actually S-shaped. It's not C-shaped or U-shaped, it's S-shaped. What does this word really mean? When you're with me, you're going to find out. I'm not concerned about word-for-word translations. There's no, no such thing as a perfect translation. What I want is an interpretation by concept. So what does this word translated rib here really mean? 
It actually means that which gives support. Did you hear that? That which gives support. What did God promise? I'm going to make an equal who will complete him. What did God use to make the equal who will complete him? That which gives support. And God took all of the material to make the body of the woman out from inside the body of the man. And of course, think about the difference about how the man and the woman were created. You know, well, man was made from dirt. And many women still feel that way about it. <laughs> but, but woman was made from living material. Now, don't you treat living material differently than you do dirt? Oh, come on, when you pick up a kitten, a puppy, a baby, you do it differently than you do a bucket of dirt, right? And woman was made from living material. And notice God removed this material, all of it, transformed it, changed it into the shape of the woman. It was made from living material. It didn't have to be made alive. It was alive. And then God takes the spirit of Eve prepared beforehand, puts it inside her body, and she becomes a complete, whole human being with infinite eternal value and worth, body, soul, and spirit. And notice what happens next. In your English translation, it typically says, and God brought her to the man. Now, first of all, well, that sounds kind of abrupt, right? I mean, the, the perfunctory word there, you know, but, but, well, it kind of sounds abrupt, right? It, it kind of sounds like, you know, God put her in a basket, left her on the doorstep, punched the doorbell, and ran, you know? <laughs> Come on, it, it kind of sounds like, here, take her, she's yours, I'm out of here. <laughs> but again, this is the problem of translation. The word brought there actually means to bring a special gift to a special person. A special gift to a special person. Has there ever been a time in your life when you were able to buy, make, procure in some way or another the perfect gift for somebody very close to you? Maybe it was a parent, grandparent, spouse, very close friend, but you were able to buy, make, or procure the perfect gift for them. Is that right? And tell me something. Isn't getting the perfect gift part of that process, the anticipation of what it's going to be like when you give them the gift. Hello? Come on, you get the perfect gift. Part of it's the anticipation of what it's going to be like when you give them the gift, right? And so, think with me. God had this perfect gift. But he had to wait to the right time to give him the gift. And God had anticipation. As a matter of fact, he had an ache of anticipation because he had the perfect gift to give this guy, but he had to wait to the perfect time. And uh, think about the parallels again. Notice in Genesis chapter 2, it says this, God so loved man, he gave him woman. Hello? It says, God so loved man, he gave him woman. What does it say in the New Testament? God so loved them both. He gave his only son to die on a cross for them. Is that correct? Parallels are really interesting, aren't they? But of course, a gift is not a gift until you receive it. Would you agree? Come on, come on. A gift is not a gift till you receive it. After all, God gives the gift of salvation to everybody, but only those who receive it possess it. Is that correct? And it's interesting to me that we have recorded here where Adam actually receives this perfect gift. I also find this very interesting. If you look at uh, verse 23, you notice it's in quotes because God is saying this. 
uh, and Adam is saying that, all of those quotes. Um, but here, it's recorded what Adam actually said. What I find interesting is, I have a scriptorium at home. I have uh, literally dozens and dozens of translations, not only in English, but also in Russian, Portuguese, because I have to know what they say in my mission work. Um, but I find it interesting. This one verse is almost always translated in the English Bible in 1611 Shakespearean English. I think it's just tradition, but regardless, when you read this, you're almost forced into reading it this way. <clears throat> this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. No sympathy applause. No, 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 no sympathy applause. But didn't Adam just vindicate exactly what I said? Did he say this is a bone taken out of my body? No, he said this is all the flesh and all the bones taken out of my body to make the woman. Is that correct? And he vindicates what I just said. And then, of course, well, then God performs the very first marriage ceremony in, in human history. Now, we should always think of God being present at every marriage, of course, but here he's actually performing the service. Now, of course, there were no bridesmaid or best men. Apparently, some of you have to think about that. Uh, but notice what it says here in verse 24. God says, for this cause. Now, any time in the Bible you have therefore, because, or for this cause, remember, it's a logical construct. It says because of what I have just said, because of what I have just done, because of what I have just taught, because of that, this follows. And God says, because of the things I have just taught you. He says, because of that, a man shall leave his father and his mother, speaking prophetically, and shall cleave to his wife. Now this word, I've talked about it here before when I talked about Noah's flood, the water's cleaved presentation that we do. The word to cleave means to come to a knife edge. To come to a knife edge. Now, again, if you think about the Bible conceptually, God says marriage is to be like a knife blade. Yeah, I know some people think it's sticking in their backs. But, but God says marriage is to be like a knife blade. Well, how is marriage like a knife blade? Well, if you think about it, just look at my hand for a moment. Pretend it's a knife. The handle here, the point towards you, the edge up here. How is marriage like a knife blade? Well, a knife has a right side and a left side, and marriage has a man and a woman. However, within the covenant of marriage, they form a knife edge. Now, please tell me, right along the edge of a knife, can you actually say that there's right side or left side? No, it's just one, is that correct? The two don't lose their individuality because there's a right side and a left side to the blade, but within the covenant of marriage, they become one. And God says they are one flesh. Now, why? I asked you if you would, hold on, look back with me. Why are they one flesh? Because that's the way it was in the beginning. You see, God made one body with enough material for two. He made it alive, took the spirit of Adam, put it inside the body. He became the first man. But then later, God would surgically separate them into two bodies, make this one into the woman, adds the spirit of Eve. And then what happens to the marriage covenant? They are reunited back into one flesh. Why? Because they were one flesh to begin with, surgically separated into two and reunited back into one. 
I can assure you this is only about 40% of the total message on this subject. But I do want to stop. Pastor Bruno is going to come up here momentarily. But I also want you to think about this. I hope you've learned something about marriage, but we have all had that experience. There was a time when men and women were united with God, but what happened? Sin surgically separated man from God. But God has provided another covenant called the covenant of salvation by which we can be reunited with him again. Well, Pastor Bruno, if you'll come up and close us out, sir.